0: Hello again. This is session three of the fourth World Sepsis Congress, an intriguing panel discussion on overcoming silos to address infection-related global health threats. We have an all-star lineup of panelists moderated by Brenda Morrow from South Africa. Brenda, take it away.
1: My name is Brenda Morrow, and I am a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Cape Town in South Africa with a background in physiotherapy. Um, and I'm currently um, the President of of the World Federation of Paediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies, which which I think gives me me some credibility in this um, very prestigious forum. Um, So thanks very much to the organizers. So we are going to be running this session with um, firstly, very brief presentations or discussions from each of our panel members who I will introduce before they start speaking, and that will take about 15 minutes. And after that, we will invite um, the audience, all of you attending, to please contribute to this discussion. We would really like to make it as interactive um, as possible. You know that there is um, the the ability to to put in comments and questions to the panel members. Please do use that facility. I will be keeping an eye on it um, throughout the presentations. Um, and we hope to really make this a a truly interactive panel discussion. So I'm going to kick off straight away by introducing Jyoti Joshi that we are greatly honored to have um, joining us today. Um, Jyoti is an antimicrobial resistance advisor in the International Center for MR Solutions in Copenhagen in Denmark. Um, She has a specialization in community medicine and infectious diseases And a wealth of experience in public health implementation and policy in a number of relevant areas um, to this congress. She has really forged vital public health implementation and research collaborations for public health impact in South Asia. She also supports country teams comprising ministries and researchers in sub-Saharan Africa, where I am based, and in Asia for co-developing implementation research-related projects. That are tailored to local contexts for AMR mitigation. So Jyoti will be be starting us off um, by discussing breaking the silos and stopping the spread. Please go
2: ahead, Jyoti. Thank you, Brenda. I'll. I'm really uh, honored to be at this panel discussion today, and I would just like to introduce the work that I do at ICARs and how it, uh, you know, st- w- merges into the uh, overall topic of this Congress. So I work at the International Center for Antimicrobial Resistance Solutions in Copenhagen, as Brenda mentioned. At ICARS, we are a small team of around 28 employees, but representing almost 15 countries across the world uh, in a growing organization, which was Danish-initiated in Denmark, but has become now uh, an independent, self-governed, non-profit organization, uh, which works across countries, especially in low- and middle-income contexts. develop and test context specific solutions for antimicrobial resistance which actually since antibiotics are used across uh, all sectors beyond even just human health even for animals and when they are entering the environment they have impact so it's a typically you know very uh, typical one health problem that affects all sectors that we work in and through its work we are trying to work with low and middle income countries to attract funding as well as expertise to provide solutions in their context. Why am I mentioning this here? Because the way we work is, if you can see, we have uh, pillar one and pillar two, where we develop and test or we support the translation of uh, evidence base, which already exists in science, but has not been applied at scale in those contexts where the burden of antimicrobial resistance or the use of antibiotics is the greatest into actually coming up with solutions that can be put into both policies implementation programs and practice for making sure appropriate antimicrobial use is done so that infections can be prevented and infections which can lead to sepsis in the congress that we are speaking on can be prevented but we don't just stop here we also do work for advocating about context specific and country owned solutions to tackle the problem and develop capacities in these contexts for appropriate antibiotic use and good clinical care for human, if, as we are discussing in human health practice. And last but not the least, our cross-cutting pillar which you see at the center is about being a trustworthy partner and a platform for both low-middle-income countries as well as other partners in this space. And the uniqueness of our approach is that we have both a top down and a bottom up engagement of, of uh, countries. And how we do this is by securing ministerial commitment because any program we believe in LMIC context needs the support and leadership of the top political level. Once that is internalized, then the going is easy for program managers on the ground as well as other advocates who work in infection prevention and control or infectious disease control management. So once we work with the ministries, we also have local research institutions or universities who are uh, having a very good handle on the research context and the specificities needed for monitoring the quality of science as well as management of the grants together with the support of the ministries to execute these projects. And we currently have 32 projects across 16 countries All across the globe, but more in Africa and Asia, Latin America, and even Europe, as you would see from this slide, which are both funded by us as well as uh, co funded with partners. Why are we here today? I would just like to take this uh, slide to talk about this diagram that I have. At the center of the whole philosophy of ICARS is retaining antibiotics to be efficacious for preventing infections and supporting the community. We work across One Health, but specifically here for humans, if we need time, uh, if we have good antibiotics that are public goods that can be used appropriately through timely diagnosis and management, we will have in, uh, situations which can lead or be aggravated to sepsis prevented in the community for the benefit of not just the community, but also the planet. And I have shared here in my slide some of the examples of how we are doing this with current projects, which are spanning Georgia, Zambia, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, Zanzibar for the audience to read further. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jyoti. We'll move on to our next
1: presentation. Please remember to put your questions for the speakers um, in the chat group, and we will attend to them at the end. We'll move to our next panel member now, who is Mike English, who is well-known to everybody as well, I'm sure. Um, he's a Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow and Professor, Professor of International Child Health at Oxford University in the UK, where he currently leads the Health Systems Collaborative. Um, I'm familiar with his work largely because of, of of the work that he did in Kenya for 25 years, Um, and he remains a senior researcher in that context associated with the Wellcome program. Um, He created Kenya Basic Pediatric Protocols and the ETAT Plus course that is used across Africa, Um, and he conducts large-scale implementation and quality of care studies within that context as well. Um, He's also worked with the World Health Organization on many initiatives, um, and really brings a wealth of expertise and knowledge um, to this group. So thanks very much, um, Mike. You will be presenting or speaking on newborn and child health in low and middle income countries um, and how that is critically dependent on the sector working. Thank you.
3: Great, and thanks very much to the organizers for inviting me. I hope you can hear me. Okay, I'm in a relatively noisy place. Um, I, I think I'm following on quite naturally from um, Dr. Joshi's presentation. I was asked to talk more about neonatal infections. Everybody knows that newborns are one of the major problems with... Um, is one of the ma- new neonatal sepsis is one of the major killers in the newborn period globally. It's also one of the biggest problems for infection prevention control, and it's one of the areas in many health s- systems, particularly in the hospitals, where antimicrobial resistance is proving a huge challenge. Um, and so, in this context, neonatal sepsis is, if you like, a tracer for everything that could go well, but currently, many of the things that are going wrong with both the management of sepsis, linking to the use of antibiotics and the prevention of particularly hospital acquired infection. And I hope you can see my slide. The issue, it's a relatively complex slide, but the idea to here is that. On the left-hand side, you'll see that most patients enter a health system, they're admitted, and then they may, if they're sick enough, they'll spend a few days, maybe a little longer, particularly on a newborn unit, within a health facility. And there are multiple providers involved. And I think we often think of sepsis as something that specialist doctors deal with, rather than everybody dealing with. And on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll hopefully see all of the different layers of the system that contribute to making the outcome of this episode of sepsis um, a, a good outcome and I won't go through all of this but many people will know for example that there are problems even getting access to adequate antibiotics so that doses are missed that increases the chances of treatment failure but also subsequent resistance There are problems with still with us having very limited guidance for people of what to do in places where there is no diagnostic to tell you what pathogen you're dealing with. And sadly, there are still very, very major problems with things as basic as water and hygiene so that we can actually do effective um, hand washing or hand hygiene in facilities. So I think neonatal sepsis and its management is a real marker of what the system is able to do for managing sepsis but the solutions cut across all age groups, and it's we need to be working together as clinical specialists, but also as health systems specialists and implementers to try and solve these problems. But let me stop there. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Thanks very much, Mike. Moving on um, to Jemina Garçon-Valalba, and I hope I have said your your name correctly, or Jemena. Um, we will be talking about the fact that working in silos does not work for outbreak responses. ximene um, is a professional in public health appointed, who is actually appointed as the Minister of Health from May 2021 to July 2022. Uh, she was a member of the International Vaccine Institute Board of Trustees representing Ecuador in 2022 and is currently the Dean of Public Health at the University San Francisco de Quito and a member of the World Bank Pandemic Fund Technical Advisory Board. Um, And she will be talking to us, as I said, about working in silos um, in respect of outbreaks. Thank you, Ximena.
0: Thank you very much, Brenda, for the introduction. So I'm going to talk a little bit from the point of view of um, public health. As you know, as everybody knows, social determinants of health play a huge role in population health. What are those social determinants of health? Um, they are the conditions where people are born, live, learn, work, play, pray. Um, and they could vary depending on age, ethnicity, gender, and other variables. Social determinants of health produce a greater rate of health effects that can affect functionally and quality of life, which is this, the, the most important social determinant of health. The most powerful is poverty. Social determinants of health were negatively affected by the by pandemic of COVID-19. And uh, the reduction of economic impact reflected in a rapid increment of poverty at a global level. Approximately 97 million of people uh, live with less than $1.9 per, per day due to, due to COVID-19. And the global poverty increased from 7.8% to 9.1%. Uh, Here you can see the percent of income loss by global income uh, quintile due to COVID-19 uh, in 2020 and 2021. As you can see, uh, the poorest uh, the poorest and the, the second uh, quintile of, of poorest people in, in the whole world has been the most affected and who can't recover until now. Ecuador, my country, registered approximately 75,000 excess deaths associated with COVID-19 from March 2020 to July 2021. And here you can see the social determinants of health here in Ecuador, upstream um, associated with COVID-19. You can see here the availability of social services, employment and working conditions, income and uh, wealth distribution, ability to obtain quality education, access to quality health care, quality of, of food, and all those de- determinants in, in uh, upstream uh, cause lower physical activity and for and, and as a result non-communicable diseases, violence intentional and intentional injury, alcohol and tobacco and substance use, more non-communicable diseases, intentional and unintentional, intentional injuries. So as you can see, most social determinants of health does uh, don't depend on solely in the ministries of health or the country's health systems. They depend on other public and private organizations such as ministries of finances, local governments, school systems, ministries of agriculture, environmental organizations, etc. We have to work together to be able to prevent this kind of, of pandemics, this kind of public health catastrophes. And as a good example of uh, what happened when everybody was together is what happened in Ecuador. We had the goal to vaccinate 9 million people in 100 days. And we worked together with the army, we worked together with the private sector, and also with universities and uh, with local governments. And we did it. We vaccinated 9 million people in less than one day, in, in 93 days exactly. Um, that happens. Very quickly, it was a very uh, good example of a public health intervention where everybody was putting the the shoulder to improve the the, the health for the people. And uh, Ecuador was one of the first um, countries in South America to get rid of the face mask and to uh, get open to the economy. So this is a very, very good example on how if everybody works together, we can prevent, we can detect very quickly, and uh, we can uh, stop any kind of pandemic or other um, public health problem in, in a country or in a community. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Jimena. Um, that, that was great. Um, our next panel member is Catherine Machaba- Machalaba. I'm hoping I'm saying that I- reasonably. Um, so, Catherine is a principal scientist with a background in biology, in public health, and a PhD in environmental and planetary health sciences. Um, she is currently the principal scientist for health and policy um, at the Eco Health Alliance organization. Um, she was a lead author of the World Bank Operational Framework for Strengthening Human, Animal, and Environmental Public Health Systems at their interface. Um, she's a member of the One Health High Level Expert Panel, um, which is an expert group formed in 2021 to advise the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, the WHO, and the World Organization for Animal Health, um, and is a very, is an established researcher on a number of relevant um, um, areas and is active in the American Public Health Association currently. And Catherine will be talking about breaking these silos and improving global health through cross-sectoral action. Thank you, Catherine.
4: Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm I'm really honored to be here and to talk about the environmental and animal dimensions, especially when we think about upstream prevention of of, um, antimicrobial resistance and zoonotic diseases as they then lead to sepsis. Um, I, I just want to highlight the enormous scale of the problem that we face when we think about zoonotic diseases and AMR. We know that the majority of human infectious diseases are shared with animals. This is not just a a one-way street, of course. um, but they result in a huge burden of infectious disease each year. And unfortunately, the the uh, new the risk of new diseases appearing is increasing. We saw that with covid nineteen but also other emerging infectious diseases over recent years. and And there's a lot out there that we haven't seen yet that could still spill over. So, we, we really have the imperative to act and to take a One Health approach. Um, and, and if we think about where the hotspots of disease emergence are, where we're most likely to see next occurrence of, of an emerging infectious disease that could then become an outbreak and epidemic and pandemic, we see that this is really not an equitable Um, allocation of where the risk is. And unfortunately, the places that have the highest risk also typically have the lowest access to diagnostics, the the really limited access to healthcare and um, workforce and training pipelines, um, and also other factors that really increase risk and vulnerability. So it is an equity issue when we think about this as well and of course how it leads then to sepsis. Uh, I think this is where the One Health opportunity comes in. So it's an approach, it's it's really uh, aiming to sustainably balance and optimize the health of people, animals and ecosystems. This is a definition that was um, adopted by four uh, inter, uh, intergovernmental partners called the quadripartite together. And really the core of this approach comes down to communication, collaboration, coordination, and capacity strengthening. So things that we're already doing, but we really need to upscale when when we think about that coordination with all sectors as other uh, panelists have mentioned. Um, just to highlight a few examples of this, you know, we see that sepsis is not just a human issue. It also affects other species. We also see as our colleague previously mentioned about neonatal infections, um some some infections that actually appear to be sepsis but are caused by other factors so you know this 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 challenge of diagnostics of of timely diagnostics and then really proper response based on um based on what what the causal factor is and the the presentation of it then the opportunity too. We see that countries are forming one health coordination platforms, bringing together different sectors. Uh, and this this uh, I just want to give an example of Liberia, which is really uh, has a strong coordination platform and celebrates both uh, reducing risk of zoonotic diseases, um, tackling AMR and other factors under one one roof. I would say so an opportunity to also bring in sepsis prevention there as an objective. Lastly, I just want to highlight some examples from the field. At EcoHealth Alliance, we are working with many partners in Liberia on the What's the Fever project, looking at when people come into healthcare facilities presenting with acute febrile illness, really um, non-specific symptoms. Um, and, and, you know, it could be any suite of things. It could be co-infections. It could be um, new, new emerging infectious diseases. We just typically don't have the diagnostics in place to determine that and get the treatment that is needed. Um, we also can look at really upstream factors like evidence of zoonotic transmission and risk factors that increase risk of exposure. So uh, really where One Health can uh, approach can play a role is in the prevention and detection and I, I think that we have really common goals in, in working towards this to prevent sepsis and, and other impacts. So thank you for the opportunity and I look forward to the discussion.
1: Thank you so much um, Catherine. So we're moving on to our final panel member who is Shivan Jacob. Um, who is an infectious diseases physician and a reader in sepsis research at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Um, He's been conducting research since 2006, aiming at improving the management and outcomes of patients hospitalised with life-threatening infections, specifically in resource-constrained settings, Um, and his primary focus is on adult sepsis in Uganda, where I believe he currently lives and where I visited a couple of years ago um, and and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, And as part of this research research portfolio, he's led multinational consortia that focus on building sepsis research capacity in sub-Saharan Africa to really try and identify and address these knowledge gaps um, along the continuum of the health system. Um, He also has a decade of experience as a consultant to the WHO on a range of sepsis-related topics. Um, he's co-founder and director of Wulimu, which is a Ugandan NGO, secretary general for the African Sepsis Alliance, and a board and executive committee member for the Global Sepsis Alliance. And he will be um, discussing why silos might actually be killing people in LMIX. Thank you very much, Shevin.
5: Thanks so much, Brenda. Um, yeah, I was given the, the, the somewhat difficult task of, of uh, taking the position on why silos are killing people in, in LMIX. Um, and I decided to approach this in a, in a little bit of a different way, where the silos that I'm referring to are perspectives. So I'll, while there are many siloed perspectives with, with respect to sepsis and, and more broadly infection-related global health threats, um, these are three that I would like to highlight. So the first uh, The first is, uh, the first siloed perspective is that sepsis in low- and middle-income countries is primarily a disease of children and peripartum mothers, and we know that the recent global burden of disease and WHO uh, reports highlighted the importance of sepsis in children under five years old and peripartum mothers, and yet there are very limited population level data available on the burden among adolescents and adults. Um, The estimates of sepsis burden in Africa, for example, are extrapolated from numbers modeled from Mexico. Um, Yet we know from several studies across the continent that 28-day mortality approaches 50% in non-pregnant adults. And this level of mortality persists in those patients who survive to be discharged. And furthermore, we know that the patients with comorbidities like HIV are at greatest risk. Um, And so lack of understanding of the extent of the burden and mortality across different age groups and members of the population can result in programs and policies that exclude the very groups who might benefit the most. So that was perspective one. Siloed perspective number two is that sepsis in low and middle income countries is a standalone condition unrelated to existing diseases and programs. And with this siloed perspective, we lose the opportunity to leverage sepsis in in two ways. Um, First, as an indicator or tracer illness for the health system. So managing sepsis well requires us to think about all aspects of the patient journey, from early recognition, time to treatment, management and monitoring, and post-discharge follow-up. And if we can follow how well this is done for sepsis within a health system, we can get insight into the strengths and weaknesses of that health system, And so a deliberate approach using sepsis in this way can ultimately lead to strengthened systems that are equipped to manage all critical illness. The second way uh, which we lose the opportunity to leverage sepsis in this siloed perspective is as a corollary for less frequently occurring infectious diseases that share a common pathophysiologic pathway with more frequently occurring causes of sepsis. Um, So we can take advantage of a higher prevalence of uh, uh, sepsis for more commonly attributable etiologies to attempt to answer questions about fundamental sepsis management approaches. This could be things like the extent and type of fluid resuscitation, the timing, type, and administration route of life-saving treatment, whether they're antimicrobials or vasopressors. And an example of this might be outbreak-prone diseases like Ebola disease, which are rare in occurrence and, as a consequence, with a priority to understand the optimal supportive care is often superseded by the immediate need to evaluate and administer antiviral treatment. Yet, an evidence-based approach to supportive management drawn from research in similar settings on substance from different causes might serve to augment survival of patients with Ebola disease. And finally, the third siloed perspective is that sepsis in LMICs can be managed simply by the administration of early antimicrobials and knowing antimicrobial resistance profiles. Yet we know that sepsis requires a comprehensive understanding of the critically ill patient at the bedside. And the key information certainly includes knowledge of bug drug combinations, but also would ideally include information about organ dysfunction and the host immune response to better understand the extent of inflammation, stratify patients based on endotypes, enrich for prognosis and provide targeted therapeutic interventions. So in principle, we know that we can't manage a patient with sepsis without considering these three pillars of microbiology, organ dysfunction and host response. And by always associating sepsis management with these three pillars, we have the opportunity to open up priority areas in sepsis research in low and middle-income countries, which might include developing more comprehensive bedside diagnostic platforms tailored to the setting and optimized clinical trial design. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much to all of our panelists. that, that was very exciting um, for me. I've been trying to think as I'm hearing to hearing people speak, how we can put this all together. Um, and I think um, the message that I've got is that there are just there's just an abundance of silos that need breaking down um, from health systems and stru- and structures, policies, access and implementation, I'm not seeing the health system separate to other government departments addressing social determinants of health as, as well. Um, geographical barriers, even species barriers, we've heard about. Um, perhaps one of the barriers, and this relates to one of the questions that's been asked, um, that I didn't hear such a focus on. Perhaps is the professional health professional barriers and silos, um, in terms of of inter or even transdisciplinarity. Um, you know, and, and I think it has been alluded to, and certainly in the final talk, that sepsis seems is everybody's business, and we need to look at the continuum of care. Um, I would. I would also say, perhaps this is not just interprofessional. This is um, making sure that parents can recognise and take early, urgent action, um, and that continuum includes the community health worker, say the parent, um, district health nurses, through the continuum to tertiary and quaternary services if they are available, um, but with a focus of providing appropriate um, and time-sensitive interventions. And I think that relates to to the one's um, question which was about what measures and reforms um, do panelists feel could be expected or required in nursing specifically, um, specifically after the pandemic in view of sepsis. So if any panelists want to take this up, please raise your hand and we can call on you.
4: Thanks. Thanks, Catherine, please go ahead. Thank you. I'll just start. I mean, nurses do a tremendous amount. So I think this is really fitting, you know, where we can fit within their workflow. Um, they they are often trusted. So I think certainly as messengers of prevention strategies, but also in the intake process and identifying exposures, you know, if, if a patient does come in and is heading towards, towards you know, wh- when sepsis could occur... Um, I, I think, you know, it's crucial to know in, in terms of what what are the exposures that may be led to that, you know, so that we can narrow down what infection it likely is and get them the care they need. So I think really that building it into their workflow rather than asking them to do an entirely you know more. But yeah, thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Mike.
3: Yeah, thank you. I mean, maybe just to flag up that some of the work we're doing at the moment shows how under-resourced nursing is in terms of patient-to-nurse ratios. And it's basically impossible for a nurse to provide reasonable quality care, which includes all the infection prevention measures that they're supposed to take. So on neonatal units, we've calculated over a 12-hour shift, a nurse might have 25 minutes for each patient over that 12 hours. And these are neonatal units which include moderately intensive levels of intervention. So I think the key thing for me is we need to address the workforce shortage and then people will be able to do a reasonable job over.
2: Thanks, Mike. Jyoti? Thanks, Brenda. I would like to highlight two points. The first question that you had asked was about, I mean, engaging professionals, but also beyond that, the community, you know. So uh, I think the way uh, uh, infection control or infectious disease control, especially antimicrobial resistance is framed, is very complex for the community to get engaged in. But community engagement is critical and framing it simply is essential. So we are, for example, I would like to highlight one project which we have done with the Welcome Trust is about having responsive dialogues on antimicrobial resistance, taking the One Health approach. So, and now we are trying to develop a toolkit that can be used by researchers in any stream of One Health when they do research either on uh, in humans or animals or, I mean, otherwise also wherever antimicrobials are being used and need to be discussed and how that should be framed with engagement of the community so that solutions are co-created. So I would encourage the audience to go and look up the toolkit and keep looking on our website because that should be released by the end of the year. And coming to the second question about engagement of nurses, I would also like to highlight the projects that we are doing, whether it's in animal sector, where we also talk about stewardship for antimicrobials, or the human sector. It's a large part uh, for professionals. It's a large part of, you know, team engagement, because it's not the job of one um, professional, whether it's the doctor, the nurse, or the pharmacist, but ra- and even the hospital manager for that extent, or the program manager that leads it at the Ministry of Health but really to, uh, you know, to integrate antimicrobial resistance from our perspective or stewarded antibiotic use into the development priorities of the country, of the hospital or the health facility. And that's a process. So, I mean, tools and trials as we take specific solutions will be helpful.
1: Thanks very much, Jyoti. I I must
2: say, in my travels
1: um, through Africa, I've I've been quite... um, Impressed by the um, attention and and presence of um, mothers, specifically at the bedside, she performing many of the tasks traditionally considered nursing tasks in, in well developed countries that have higher ratios, um, nurses to patients. Um, and again, uh, you know, my feeling is empowering those mothers and equipping them with the necessary knowledge could go a long way to towards those goals that you are expressing. Um, And perhaps again, that leads us to the next question that we see, quite a specific one, um, but a complex one, how to prevent nosocomial outbreaks of multi-drug resistant um, infections in different contexts. And so we've addressed some of that, I think, but I I am sure that there's much more that can be said. Jimena, do you want to comment
0: perhaps? Yes, Brenda, thank you very much. Well, first of all, we have to, as, as I said in my presentation, to work together. Uh, it's important that the community, uh, here in my country, we, we have a, a problem. If you go to any pharmacy, you can buy whatever you want with any, any kind of, of, of uh, prescription, medical prescription. And that's something uh, very uh, important to take into account because antibiotic resistance is very high. Uh, besides of that people is not used to finish the, the prescription from their their physicians. so perhaps they, they take uh, five or, or or less days of antibiotics in low doses and um, of course if we take also the criteria of one health all those um, um, you know medicines that go to the to the trash, and uh, the discharge uh, in polluted water has to do with environmental health and also with veterinary, right? Because there's also the problem, as Yoti was saying, um, and also Catherine, about um, using these uh, wide spectrum antibiotics for the growth of, of animals that after all are consumed by by humans so there's a lot to do and we have to work in policies and okay. implementing policies in every country and uh, work work together inter, intersect uh, intersectorally that's that's very important not just um in the health system but with other ministries and and, and local governments that's Extremely important to tackle any kind of of problem associated with misuse of of um, um, drugs.
4: Yeah, well, just to add on the, those excellent points, I think you know we have to look at IPC in all settings. We have to look certainly in community settings and farmers, community members. Um, you know, those involved in in vaccination, veterinarians, veterinary nurses too. Um, you know, biosecurity measures. Those are really crucial. I I see those as also the front lines of of um, prevention and 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 early detection and early response. And then within healthcare facilities. You know, wash is critically important, and, and it's it's often overlooked. There are, um, you know, billions of people underserved by by uh, adequate wash in, in hospitals every day, and that's of course contributing to the spread of infections in healthcare facilities. And unfortunately, with climate change, with flooding, more intense weather, uh, you know, we we are going to be exposed more to that. And and so, really thinking about facilities of today, what it means to be climate smart for tomorrow as well. And and implementing those prevention measures, and not just in healthcare facilities, but in access to laboratories and and you know rapid diagnostics, and getting that even when there's an interruption in 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 physical you know access to healthcare facilities. So there's a lot that has to be done, and I think, but you know, the opportunity to work with environmental um, sectors in doing that with animal sectors to really have this very comprehensive strategy for IPC is crucial. Thanks.
1: Thanks very much. Catherine, does anybody have anything to
5: jump in? Shevin, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think when we're talking about nosocomial transmission of multidrug resistant uh, infections, it's, you know, by its very nature, we're talking about the health facility itself, but as our, you know, as others have already said, you know, it's it's beyond the hospital, it's before the hospital, it's well near at the hospital and after. Um, and, you know, so if we, if we sort of just, think about those different areas, you know, the, having a kind of systematic approach to how we might equip, um, uh, starting with health facilities, uh, you know, using the, maybe overused but I think quite useful model of the four S's and the, so the staff, the stuff, the space and the systems. Really thinking systematically, you know, Mike talked about the lack of nurse, uh, the nursing staff for, for the care of the neonatal patient. But when we talk about, you know, sort of infection prevention and control, do we have dedicated staff for, for, for that very role um, in all the health facilities where you know sort of uh, everyone on the uh, on at the congress is is working and everyone on this call is working um, we, we think about the stuff you know oftentimes uh, uh, we can we can bring um, the example of covid 19 and look at personal protective equipment and the availability of that or lack of um, uh, you know sort of at different phases uh, during um, the pandemic and you know sort of Yet, you know, as frontline health workers, um, there, there's a clear understanding of what type of, you know, personal protective equipment is needed. So is it prepositioned? Is it available? Are those things uh, in addition to other things that might be able to help prevent um, the transmission of, of, of um, uh, multidrug resistant infections? Um, space, uh, again, in health facilities, you know, this is just, uh, this, this also relates to systems. And just you know, is is the is the health facility is the space in which you're working is it built for purpose? Recognizing that this is a pandemic, the the you know sort of the antimicrobial resistant pandemic that is happening throughout the world, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And so we do know what uh, that, that that there's a preparedness that needs to be thought of um, even even now for AMR and multi drug resistance transmission in the same way that you know we think about the next disease X. Um, and then finally, the systems, and I think the systems, you know, speaks to the point that it's not just the health facility, it's the health facility, it's, you know, sort of, and beyond and, and really kind of prepositioning the, the system to be able to manage um, and, and, and be able to, you know, sort of address uh, uh, the potential of transitions within our health facilities um, is going to be key.
1: Thanks very much. I mean, I I think as well, you know, the the, the recognition that solutions might look different um, in different contexts. And, you know, and I think it's really important for people to be aware of those different contexts. Um, you know, I've, I've just seen quite top-down approaches to helping low-resource low, low situations um, specifically where the solutions are focused on what would be expected or encouraged in, in high-income or high-resource settings, which may be completely inappropriate for those low-resource settings. And I think it's great that, that the panelists here are really doing the research and the implementation science within low-resourced communities, um, because I think that's that's really, really important, um, to make sure that the implementation is appropriate and the interventions are appropriate. Does anybody else want to jump in at that stage, or can we move track a little bit? Ah, oh, yes, Jyoti. And can I ask take this opportunity to also ask, ask um, the audience to please remember to put your questions into the chat. Um, we're looking at at general um questions, some more specific questions, please put them in. If you can identify the speaker that you are referring to, that would help us as well. but please we do want um a good discussion here. Joti,
2: sorry. Thank you. So I think we've highlighted some very uh, a very important point, which is about context specific solutions. and that's where uh, that's how we at icars work in co-development, as we say. And what I find uh, exciting and yet challenging about this is, you know, each context is different. And when the initiative or the discussion happens between the country uh, and us, we engage in a prioritization of there's 100 things you can do to tackle appropriate, you know, uh, antibiotic use, whether in the system or outside the healthcare system, etc. But this dialogue leads to, you know, ownership from that perspective, as well as uh, being bold in trying out new things. And whether it's a success or a failure, the process in itself, I think, is a, is a movement forward rather than not trying to do anything as status quo. So I think that has been a very interesting insight for us. And second that I would like to highlight in this co-development or implementation science scenario is, you know, within the country, We try to get the research group, which is the university researchers, the academicians, to work with the ministries or the program managers. And it is, I mean, I don't think this is a silo, which is a north-south or a south-north silo. I think this is a silo which we also need to bridge because a lot of the times research gets very good results which are not translated into practice or are not scalable. And when programs are looking to do something on Uh, appropriate antimicrobial use or healthcare quality for sepsis, there are entry points that are needed, which could be the maternal and child health programs. Like Shevin said, that's a silo, but it could be an entry point if you look at it from a different perspective. But if it stays there, then it becomes a silo. So I think those are dialogues that we need to constantly have so that we learn and gather new evidence, but we also scale what is already known to the level that we have impact. Thank you. Thank you, Jimena.
0: Thank you very much. Just a small thing. Um, in order to be able to to breach these silos, it's important um, to promote health promotion, and um, that that's really important because it's not just for health care workers; it's there for the, the whole community. Uh, everybody has to. Uh, learn how to be responsible of the use of antimicrobials, and um, this is something that we are not working in communities, and, and that's uh, uh, a an, um, goal that we have really to to be focused in in get in in the to promote that each individual should be responsible of the use of antibiotics. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Anybody wanting to respond to that? Not seeing any hands. We have another question, which is quite specific. I think it's directed at Catherine. Um, But I'm actually quite interested in the answer as well. What is the reason that the UK showed up so brightly on the map for
4: risk of pandemic? Oh, that's a great question. So there, yeah. there is, you know, certainly surveillance and reporting bias. Um, the maps have been corrected just, just for, um, uh, just, just to recap on the, the map. It's a hotspot map of of, of disease emergence, and it's based on um, historical data. Um, I think we can also think in the future about where ecosystems are changing, where uh, human and animal interactions are changing, where domestic animal and wildlife interactions are changing. But there is a um, you know some some component of detection um, bias. If we look at a map for AMR, and that work has been done um, by Kate Jones and and team, um, it, you know it it really shows specifically by vector borne disease, by um, by zoonotic, wildlife borne, domestic animal, and then AMR. So we can target in different ways, and there are different drivers. At the same time, I think a lot of the the drivers do overlap um, in terms of just the the massive changes that we're seeing and and how. Uh, antimicrobials come in, but also you know remembering that this is not just a um, a bacterial issue, there are viral infections. those are certainly on the rise as we we think about new um, sources of emergence, and we really need to tackle across the board just prevention at, at source to minimize the the risk of something becoming an outbreak and epidemic. Thanks for the great question. Thank you
1: so much. so we do not have further questions in the chat. And again, I would encourage the audience to please put your questions um, into the chat. We have lots of greetings, but we don't have that many comments. I think people have just appreciated um, the information. Um, Oh, there's one that's in the comment, which is a question in fact. Um, And I think this is, is very relevant certainly to the South African situation where I find myself. Is how should we be building engagement between health professionals and community in situations where there is considerable community-based crime um, and and a lack of trust um, in in really anybody in power, including health professionals, if crime is is highly prevalent? And I, I say that's that's something that we do see um, in the community where I live and and work. I don't know if any of you have any suggestions on how we can. Tackle that. That's a challenging one. Catherine, I think
4: you jumping. Yeah, thank you. I, w- I would just say, you know, from a One Health standpoint, we really see that context matters and which stakeholders are relevant certainly to reduce risk to understand and and reduce risk but also to implement solutions you know that that's something that can really vary by by communities and there have been some uh I think very inspiring examples of um who who was enrolled in in um, playing a, a key part of reporting and in some cases it was car mechanics you know in some cases it was it was farmers and I think it's just finding those those entry points but also yeah, who is trusted and who is a, a, a the right messenger of that, and and also who is hearing different inputs. You know, park rangers, for example, we, we can also think about it as as they see uh, wildlife. You know, maybe unusual mortality events in in wildlife, and that could be a signal for um, threats to to human health. So I think it, again, context really matters, and uh, it's a challenging issue. I think it doesn't get enough attention in terms of um, you know how to overcome that. But I I do think it all comes down to the local context and local solutions. Thanks.
2: Thanks. And um, Jyoti, your hands up. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight again uh, and say that, you know, there are learnings from other con- uh, other disease surveillance programs, for example, the HIV AIDS program where key communities which are, you know, which with, with, uh, with uh, high risk behaviors who are targeted and who were then uh, learnings by working from them. Led to uh, solutions that can be co-created with their participation, and uh, these different risk behaviors are seen in different contexts, including crime. And yet, we there have been successful interventions in this regard, whether in workplaces, in in you know, like even in prisons or in the delivery of uh, substitution programs. So I think. Those are examples where we don't need to look in a in the in the silo of one particular sector, but learn from disease controls. And I think other examples of disease control programs. And I think the other uh, big game changer, and especially during the COVID pandemic, we have seen is the use of technology. When we talk of sepsis, when even we could not meet each other, when we had lockdowns all over the world, we were still able to reach out to a lot of the community. I mean, there are not not necessarily the ideal practice, but you know that's a start, and we should now think of how use how we can use technology in a in a more appropriate and efficient manner for tackling both sepsis and providing diagnostic accuracy in the same time, and then uh, leveraging the access to medicines for those who need it the most, rather than you know looking at broad spectrum antibiotics being misused. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much. I think your your point is really important about the social collaboration. I know in the health in the health research world, when we have we have community advisory boards, where we really engage with the communities that are, are being targeted in the research. And I think the same goes for implementation science. We really need to be engaging with the communities directly, um, in terms of identifying priorities and identifying solutions. And I really think, in terms of 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 crime prevalent regions, that is probably the the first prize of the most important um, approach to take. Shivan or Mike, do you have any comments to make on that? Yeah, Mike.
3: Um, Well, I mean, just one small point um, on the issue about communities, particularly from a health facility perspective, most of the people that work in the facilities are from the communities. And they have to face these issues on a day-to-day basis. So they're probably the first people to ask about how we should do things. Um, and they're also our colleagues. Um, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of this is about governance, ultimately. And you may not be able to change your government and the way it governs things, but you might be able to change the way you govern locally or practice governance. And so you can create trust with a community uh, locally, um, even if you're, Wider political system is not trusted. I would say I'm not saying it's easy, but it's possible. (laughs) I'd just like to make one comment on an earlier discussion, um, linked to the nosocomial infections issue. There is always a danger, it seems to me, that we're uh, expecting the magic bullet. It's a bit like climate change. You know, our hopes are now pinned on carbon capture, which is a technology none of us have, but we're hoping we're kind of relying on it to solve our future problems or current problems. And we know a lot of what to do for infection prevention control. We just don't do it. Um, I think Catherine made the point about WASH. Most most African hospitals don't have decent toilets. <laughs> How can we expect to have a good infection prevention control unless we start doing some of these really basic things? Um, but it doesn't grab the headlines. Um, and, and so I think that's part of our job is to make sure we don't get too excited by the fifth-generation capitalist foreign that might be on the pipeline, and remember that there's a lot of foundational work to do over. Yeah, I think
1: that that's absolutely imperative, um, and again, it it speaks to to local solutions for local problems. Um, and you know, where where running water is not available, you know, it might not be cost-effective to to. Plumb an entire hospital. It may not be possible to do so, Um, but I've certainly seen some really innovative solutions where the water is brought in, and there's a system of clean water flowing down to dirty water that is then disposed. And and, you know, there's systems that can work in those environments. Um, But you first have to think about it, and and then and then apply it. And I think it's really yeah
3: to make it a priority.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah, prioritizing and and addressing the basics. Um, there is a very specific question that's now been asked three times, which I, which and I, I so I see that the, the person asking the question really really needs to know the answer um, related to the nursing um, time per shift. There was a, a statement earlier about twenty five minutes um, nursing time per shift, and they would really like to know how that was calculated. I believe Mike, I think it was you who said that. Um, I believe.
3: Yeah, it's actually extraordinarily simple, and it makes me ashamed that we didn't do it twenty five years ago. Um, I mean, if you simply count the number of patients and you know the numbers of nurses you have on a shift, that's not rocket science. <laughs> um, but if you want more information, please shout. Um, there are a few different nursing workflow um, calculators, um, but it's really very easy. Over. Thanks so much.
1: We have a new question here. Um, what the panellists would advise for a bottom-up approach to tackling silos? Shevin, can you maybe respond to that? You've been quiet. I'm sorry to put you on the spot.
5: No, no, no. It's a really great question, and and I think um, uh, Jyoti sort of showed a really beautiful slide that you know sort of showed both the bottom up and top down approach. And I and I think um, when we're so now advocating for for a, a disease like sepsis and trying to inform policy and changes in behavior and, and everything in between, um, it really does require our sort of redefining or defining the stakeholder as some in a comprehensive way. So oftentimes our stakeholder engagement is, is something that looks like, you know, sort of all the people from the Ministry of Health and all people that are involved with policy and these, you know, sort of potential funders and, and that sort of top-down approach. Um, but civil society, you know, I mean, and, I, I, and I, I would argue that part of the problem with our bottom-up up approaches is that we use this term community. Um, and I think Mike just brought up a, a, a simple but poignant point, which is that, you know, people working in, in, a, in a clinic or in a hospital are part of the community in which we're, they're working. We're all part of some community. And so... Defining this community as another, rather than sort of really trying to figure out how do you do that, you know, sort sort of from a from an approach that and you know sort of involves a uh, community, you know, there's terms like co-production and and you know sort of bringing in civil society, bringing in patient advocates, thinking about the perspective of patients um, to then move forward with with all different players in this sort of comprehensive approach. To try and make changes in uh, and, and policy and and behavior is probably um, well that was that would be the approach that that I would use <laughs> um, and and I and I think uh, one that you know probably is worth worth considering across all the different settings where we work.
1: Thanks so much, Evan. Joti, do you have something to add
2: to the bottom bottoms up? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, point because. The One Health approach is a very strong theoretical concept, but I think it's still got to find its feet on the ground, especially in LMICs where, you know, the the systems work in a very very different manner when they're pushed, they, they deliver, but they may not be functioning in those silos all the time. So what I would recommend is, you know, that standard recipe I feel that works everywhere is that first do a very good stakeholder mapping of... Who are the key people in that context that you are in? It could be your residential community, your health clinic, your farm, if you're in the animal sector, if you're if you're a diagnostic lab. So, you know, just see who are the key stakeholders, map them based on their uh, dynamics in terms of the ability to bring about change or lead a change. Find a champion because find that entry point who is willing and supportive for the topic or the cause that you are... Uh, keen to do it and it could be just a mother in the household like we've been discussing it could be the manager that you work with it could be just a nurse in your clinic but find that uh, entry point and the champion and work with them support them and introduce the change and pilot it learn from it and then keep continuing to review it in a very like a quality cycle approach and that usually will lead to solutions that are co-created by that group that is your uh, solution-oriented uh, group and then you take it to scale and see from your example, modify it, learn from it and keep growing. Thanks so much, Jyoti. Does anybody have anything to add?
3: Oh yes, sorry, Mike. Yeah, just uh-huh. um, I think one of the things that we also need to remember is that people's priorities may not be our priorities and the first thing we need to do is ask them what their problem is or what problems they have, or which problems they want us to help them solve. And if that's not the one that we think is most important, then we may have to live with that, but solve the one that they want, and then maybe see how we can, if our potential agenda is linked to their agenda in some way. But it may be that people's problem is not AMR. I doubt whether any of them would say that. I doubt whether many of them would say sex this is our problem. But they might say, you know, the clinic is closed at night so how do we solve that or or as Jimena says you know they may have problems with toilets so what do we do about so we need to find ways of identifying the problems that people express and working in other ideas of my thinking over. Thanks so much for
1: that. And so we have another question on how we should be leveraging the already well-established um, policies and programs such as those existing for cancer, HIV, AIDS, to get public financing for sepsis advocacy, awareness and prevention um, in low resourced settings. And that comes from Khalima um, Salisu Kabara um, from the African Sepsis Alliance.
2: Thanks, that's a great question. And I'm participating in this uh, panel discussion today after a very intensive last week at ECMID, which was the European Congress for Infectious Diseases and you know in one of the panel discussions that i was in the question that came up was patient engagement or community engagement this was a human centric conference so pardon me for that but it's about community engagement and again i think we should we need to sit back and reflect a patient or an amr um, a person who has suffered from antimicrobial resistant infection is not going to be found in isolation he or she is the same person who's probably have who has diabetes or who's got a joint replacement done who has survived cancer or has gone through her second or first cycle of chemotherapy or radiotherapy and had to take an antibiotic. So I think if the, if, a, if the question comes from an alliance of people who are working for cancer, cancer survivors or HIV-AIDS or patient safety, I think these are the people who would have to be engaged in the discussion on when do they use antibiotics, which ones are they using, what were the problems they faced. and What would they like to do? I mean, like Mike said very nicely, I mean, it has to be a problem that is recognized by everybody. And so we will also have to go back to the drawing board, simplify that question and come back. Sometimes the solution may be as basic as investing in health systems, creating that toilet, having a person on board who is going to monitor that the toilet is clean every day, twice a day. So you know, those kinds of investments will then be demanded by the community or the people who are engaged. And they will be created. So I think that's what I would encourage this group of survivors to do: is talk about this topic, engage, frame it so that their members understand it, and then talk uh, talk with a larger audience of healthcare professionals who can work with them and bring up uh, the discourse to uh, to the next level. Thank you. Are there any other top uh, comments from the panelists? I
1: mean, I know, I know in South Africa. Um, we, we certainly used the HIV AIDS precedent um, when dealing with the early phases of the COVID-19 pandemic um, in terms of cost effectiveness, in terms of rapid rollouts and community responses, because we already had that data. And so we could present it to um, our health managers and, and politicians, which, which I do think was, was really useful. So where where, the, where these policies and programs have been shown to be effective and cost effective, I do think leveraging them um, for other priority programs, you know, is is a possibility. I'm not sure what
4: what any of you think of that, Catherine. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I think it really reminds us, you know, we we are very good at building the the vertical programs, and we're not that good at really making sure then systems are agile and able to address other, other issues. So I think, you know, that there are a lot of contributing factors to that. Sometimes it's really driven by, by funding, um, and, and priorities, you know, single disease priorities. And I think you know, just making sure that we we acknowledge where there are gaps, really chronic gaps the the basics as as um Mike mentioned that we leave unattended. I think we have to be very honest about that, and even as things are going very well, make sure that we're routinely stepping back and saying what is not covered, you know, things like like wash we we discussed, but also diagnostics and 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 I think in terms of the ROI, you know, the return on investment, just recognizing it's not, it's not just one thing that will really produce the needed result, And, and I think it's very attractive to say, you know, what's one intervention we can prioritize as we looked at those. We've of course seen that they're really, they, they require the enabling factors from, from many different things. And, and um, I, I, I think that awareness of, you know, you, you want to have this, this, this project that really fits nicely, and and um, you know you can sell this story easily, but but I think recognizing that you 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 can't get those results without really having the system in place, and and that that's something that I think in terms of missed opportunities, we we tend to forget. And I just want to you know, also say from the, the community level, there's a lot that can be done too. And it, it, it really can be context specific. And, you know, I think just getting started is important and investing in communities, investing in the solutions, and maybe it doesn't, you know, reduce all sources of risk. Maybe it doesn't reduce all sources of antimicrobial use, but it, it at least, you know, starts to build that awareness and creates an entry point for, for further work. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Uh, any, any other comments? Yeah, Shevan. Go
5: ahead. Yeah, that, uh, that as a great question from from Halima, who who I know well, um, and and I think that this is you know the 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 point that she brings about what a, you know learnings from you talked about HIV, Brenda, but also cancer, and you know I think this has been said in in, in other fora, but you know with, in terms of sepsis, we, we have a branding problem, right? So you know you know there it's a very difficult you know uh, uh, um, time that we have to get from, you know, we spoke about all these different uh, stakeholders. Um, if we query, you know, sort of ask all of them, you know, what their understanding of sepsis is, we'll get a different answer all the time. And and that is the same sort of exercise that has been done for years and decades, um, where we're still, um, we're not really making headway on, you know, sort of being able to communicate what sepsis is um, to the to, to the people who we we would love to understand that whether it's other health workers whether it's you know people who eventually become patients you know whether it's policymakers um, and and we know that in cancer it's very similar right cancer is is a uh, is an umbrella term um, that uh, encompasses many different types of cancer many different types of pathophysiology and yet you know people if, if you ask people what is the mechanism uh, uh, uh of cancer um for for you know sort of again the broad group of stakeholders whoever they may be you you're going to get completely different answers but everyone understands the importance uh, of uh, uh early recognition of cancer management screening prevention um and so all of these elements are parallels for us in sepsis and so definitely i agree with Lima that we can you know use uh, several pages from from the cancer playbook um, to to you know sort of rework our our approach to branding sepsis uh, uh, globally.
0: Thanks, Shevin. Jimena? Uh, a quick comment: um, if we want to have an impact uh, in public health in an intervention of public health, we can work um, from the bottom of a pyramid or from the a vertex of the pyramid if we work from the vertex of the pyramid that means that government and health ministries can develop any kind of of uh, policies that's going to be very quick the effect of the policies are going to be very quick in the population perhaps they are not going to last for a long time because here, for example, in, in, in South America, where the politics are very unstable, if we change government, perhaps those um, policies are gonna change too, all right? But if we work from the base of the pyramid, which is the community, which is the people, all the implementations, all the um, changes that we are looking in public health are gonna last. Are gonna be part of the community, are gonna part are, are gonna be part of the way of thinking, their customs. Um, so it's gonna be a, a better impact if we work in the community. Another thing that is very important in, in this kind of of changes in public health interventions in public health that, that we we can have, we can develop is working with um with, with academia, with academia, right? Uh, for example, health economics. They have to um, work showing the people that take the decision and uh, that sepsis or any kind of, of of problem in 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 health have a deep impact in the population. So I think that health economics could work very very well. Um, showing with numbers how this, the, the society is going to be impacted with these diseases. The country is going to uh, be impacted with these diseases. So if we work together with academics and, uh, and, and the whole uh, system, uh, I think that we're going to have better results than we have had in the, in the, in the past. Thank you
1: thanks thanks and more silos that need to be broken down
2: there Jyoti? quick comment maybe to follow up on what was said I think we also need to go back and reflect I mean it's not about a disease or a bug or a condition like sepsis I think in our whole framework we need to keep people at the center you know it's i mean i I get this feedback a lot when I talk to people it's I mean, it's not the, the disease or the drug-bug combination that is changing that, you know, it may excite us as a lab person or as a, as a clinician, but it's what affects that person who is at the clinic today or the animal through which that person earns his or her money. So, you know, what can talk to that person, whether it's economics, like Ramina said, what is the cost that he or she has to incur for getting appropriate treatment? What are the behavior change approaches? I mean, anthropology or social science is becoming even more important as we do our projects, because when you communicate these messages, these, these soft aspects of you know how the topic is framed, what behavior changes are needed at each level is important. And then how to find the different uh, entry points, as we have been discussing, in the government's own priorities or in the community's own priorities, where people will have the motivation to take up those uh, costs, whether it's behavior or money or just changing uh, lifestyles, because nobody wants to use agents like uh, like antibiotics or not use toilets or not have a healthy life, but how we have framed that topic that it makes life easy for you know that particular person is I think the challenge we have to go back and reflect on as uh, people who engage in this topic with communities. thanks so
1: much,, Georgie. and I think that speaks very very nicely to to another to another question that came in. Related to um, quality improvement projects within the rural communities specifically and um, where they might maybe may particular lack of political will and funding But I think that that what we've been speaking to is is inclusion of the entire continuum Regardless of where a person is living or the situation that they find themselves in that they they should have access to appropriate care um, and I think that's that person-centered approach Um, And again, you know, the breaking down the global silos so that we're we're talking about a a global community of care. Um, And I think that's been very clear in throughout the discussion. Um, And I think we we have we have very nicely brought the session towards the end. I wonder if each of the panelists wants to provide just one or two sentences in conclusion, a take home message perhaps that you would like to share with the audience um, before we close the session. So I'm just looking at my screen. And um, can we maybe start with you?
5: Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. This is this has been a a really wonderful um, uh, uh, panel and getting the perspectives of this uh, all the members of, of the panel and uh, and the very useful and stimulating questions. Um, you know, we were the the panel is about silos and and trying to figure out ways to break them and. Um, uh i think we we've come up with uh, issues that sort of where the silos sort of exist um whether they are in antimicrobial resistance whether it's in sepsis whether it's in sort of more broadly um, our ability to communicate uh with uh between patients and uh, uh, and and us we health workers um uh and and we, it's clear we have a lot of work to do uh but uh, i i uh, I'm looking forward over the many next years to to work with people like you to uh, to continue to to forge forward and and really do this in as as inclusive and equitable a way as possible.
0: Thanks so much. Ximena? well I just want to say that working together intersectorially and interdisciplinary is the only way uh, is the only solution uh, to tackle any new pandemic. In the
4: world. Thank you, Um, Ximena. Catherine? Thank you so much. Yeah, I I think really the opportunity of working together, you know, the, the One Health approach, but also other multi sectoral collaboration, it's really about. Uh, creating innovation and uh, it doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be you know really exciting or, or something new but I think it allows us to expand the effectiveness and the the efficiency of it I, I just want to point out the colleague who mentioned uh rural communities i I think that's where incentives really come in as well and if people are um, coming to a clinic traveling far you know they they um want to to do the the best they can whether they're a healthcare provider or a mother or you know a, a person receiving um it, you know care and and I think, we need to use the information inputs that we're not using now that that can allow us to understand actually what is circulating in those those areas and better, um, better, you know, diagnose and, and treat. So just, you know, call on the One Health uh, community, animal and environmental stakeholders to be part of sepsis prevention and and really uh, raise awareness and and uh, help to solve the problem. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Jyoti, final comment from you. Thank you. I think I will also echo the same uh, that most of our, I agree with what has been said, but the, my last message would be like keep people at the center and provide timely diagnosis and appropriate treatment uh, for any disease, for any condition, which, which uh, and we work together rather than, you know, thinking of uh, areas that uh, are of importance. It's the people who are of importance and if we can get good quality care and a better life, all of us have to work together for that. Thank
1: you so much. And Mike had to jump off, but he did leave us with a take-home message and um, just, just a word to say that you all need to find your allies wherever you may find yourself and build with them. And I think that's that's a great uh, message to take home with us after the session. Um, so thank you very much to all of our panelists and to our audience members for their, their great questions and for the interaction. I really have enjoyed this discussion and it's really been an honor to moderate it. So in conclusion then, I would like to thank the gold, silver and bronze sponsors um, of the conference. I really think this is an amazing opportunity for the global community to get together um, on this platform and really address this this incredibly important um, problem and and hopefully find solutions um, in, in breaking down our silos. Please, all of the audience members, um, you need to note that the session has been recorded and it will be released on the YouTube channel um, on the 2nd of May, starting with sessions one and two. Um, And so you can listen on Apple Podcasts or YouTube, or you can just Google World Sepsis Congress and you will find the sessions available for you and your colleagues. Do please spread the word. Don't forget social media. Um, the importance of communication across the globe through social media. So don't forget to follow us and tag us um, in whichever social media platform you use. Um, And together we can really make sure that our community moves forward in this this, um, area. So thank you very much again for your attendance. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to the organizers. And I wish you a happy evening or a happy day, wherever you might find yourselves. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making the fourth World Sepsis Congress possible. Session four is already in the feed and session five and six will be available next Tuesday, May 16th. Until then, stay safe and thanks for joining.